This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network and Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Subi Rautio, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And on the podcast today, I'm joined by Gonzalo Santos, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of Coimbra. Gonzalo would be talking about his new book, Chinese Village Life Today, Building Families in an Age of Transition, which was published in 2021 by University of Washington Press. Chinese Village Life Today is based on more than 20 years of Gonzalo Santos's field research. The book paints a richly detailed portrait of a rural township in Guangdong province, north of the industrialized Pearl River Delta region, to consider the intimate choices that village families make in the face of larger, choices, larger forces of modernization. Filled with vivid anecdotes and keen observations, the book offers a fresh perspective on China's rural-urban divide and a grounded theoretical approach to understand how China's rural transformation is changing the ways that local people shape their intimate daily lives. These, these issues range from marriage, childbirth, and childcare to personal hygiene and public sanitation. I highly recommend the book for anyone who wants to understand village life in China today, and more broadly, for those interested in studies on medical anthropology and the workings of technocratic frameworks of governance. I will be discussing the book in more detail with Gonzalo, who I have the pleasure of joining me on the show today. Gonzalo, thank you so much for coming to joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much, Suvi, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. The pleasure for us too. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you about your background and research interests. What drove you to do um, to conduct twenty years of field research in a rural township in Guangdong? Um, what what led you to this area, to this part of China, twenty years ago? Uh, well, I mean, I think the first reason probably has to do with my family. My paternal grandparents are from East Timor, a uh, tiny little island, just. Uh, in the in the um, well in what uh, in Indonesia in the Indonesian area I mean it's an independent state nowadays it used to be a former Portuguese uh, colony and they studied in Macau so there is some kind of family connection to Macau and which I always wanted to um, to pursue or to or to revisit uh, as I um, became a teenager and started to become interested in anthropology and in sinology. Uh, and eventually I went to Macau uh, to learn uh, Chinese. I started to learn Cantonese and it became clear that I wanted to, uh, to do fieldwork in Cantonese-speaking areas in 
uh, Guangdong uh, province, probably also under the influence of my um, PhD supervisor at the time. This was the, uh, as I said, the early 90s, Charles Stafford, who was also doing fieldwork in rural areas. I kind of... uh, also wanted to have an experience in the countryside. You know, um, the countryside was very new to me. Um, it was still playing a very important role in discussions in the anthropology of China, uh, probably also under the influence of uh, the great Chinese anthropologist Fei Xiaotong, who had made the case from the 1940s, 1950s onwards that, uh, you know, Chinese society was fundamentally rural. And so if you wanted to understand Chinese civilization, you had to understand uh, the countryside. Of course, in the 90s, um, China was urbanizing, growing, and so on and so forth. So I wanted to, I wanted to kind of see what was happening to, to face uh, countryside in times of accelerated, uh, fast-paced, uh, unprecedented uh, modernization. And that's what really drove me to um, to the countryside. I bought a car uh, in with a friend of mine in in China when I moved to. I first moved to the city of Guangzhou, where I started to um, to improve my my Chinese, also improve my Mandarin, uh, and um, eventually I started to do um, short field trips to uh, rural areas in Guangdong province with a car. Um, You know, at the time, it was quite an adventure because, um, well, roads were not what they are now. Uh, There were still very few cars in uh, in China. This was the late 90s. Uh, Still very few cars, even in a big city like like, uh, Guangzhou. Uh, and much less cars in surrounding areas in the countryside. So it was quite an experience um, to kind of find uh, a place to do uh, field research um, in rural areas, which I eventually found a beautiful location, North Guangdong, that just opened for um, tourism. And so I could visit and do uh, field research and I just decided to um, to go there. Uh, one day, my I got myself on a on a bus, and I went to the to the countryside, to that location in northern north in northern Guangdong that I call um, you know the village called Harmony Cave. Uh, it's a pseudonym, obviously. Um, and um, yeah, it was the beginning of a of a very long adventure. At the time, I could not really foresee the fact that I would be doing fieldwork in that village for the next two decades. But perhaps we can talk about that in, um, as we move on in this podcast. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's just remarkable, the diligence and the persistence um, of your fieldwork and, and the the kind of the relations that you've been able to build with your interlocutors considering you've been there for two decades it's it's really incredible and and really just um kind of at the core of anth- what 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 should be at the core of anthropology um to this day and and that's really what comes out in 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 um in the book itself um 
you were you mentioned Fei Xiaotong and and this idea that um, China is you know fundamentally rural, and of course this is something that you discuss in each chapter. Um, you, I wanted to return to this. Um, I mean, you're also talking a lot about the changes, of course, and the transitions, the age of transition, which is the title of your introduction, Building Families in an Age of Transition. And in this chapter, you trace the workings of technocratic governmentality and its reconfigurations in everyday life. So what does it mean to study the everyday negotiations shaping the workings of technocratic frameworks of governance um, from an anthropological lens? Yeah, I think the age of transition that I talk about in my book, perhaps one way to put it is to refer to it as a technocratic transition. I mean, we talked about what happened in China in the last four decades as some, some kind of, a, uh, you know, with, with various terms, a, a post-socialist transition, a uh, neoliberal transition in some cases, and so on. So I uh, I'm talking about a technocratic transition because I think that um, this is probably one of the most important questions of the 21st century, not just in uh, in China. I mean, we live in a world that is increasingly dominated by technocracy, uh, in which the governance of everyday life matters is sort of increasingly informed by the input of the knowledge of experts of, of science and technology. Um, it's not to say, of course, that, that technocracy is entirely new. I mean, of course it's not. I mean, science and technology have been informing governance uh, for well over um, a century. But I think that the intensity uh, and the scope um, of, that, um, of that influence has been, have, has been growing uh, over the decades. In the book, I give the example of childbirth, for example. I mean, childbirth has been um, attempts to govern childbirth and bring it to the hospital, for example, under the, uh, you know, the guidance of, um, of doctors and, and medical staff and the support of medical technology. Efforts to do that um, around the world have been have started to take place, um, you know, a long time ago. Um, and in, in China, surely we can find the first efforts to do that uh, in the last decades of the 19th century. Um, and eventually uh, we see the rise of a national program of um, medicalization of births in the first decades of the 20th century. But if you look at the statistics of how many women are giving birth in the hospital in those periods, it's still very limited. You know, we're talking about, you know, 5 to 10% or less of women giving birth in the hospitals. For, for us to move on to a world in which the majority of women are giving birth in uh, the hospital, we have to do a fast forward to really to the last decades of the 20th century. So, so I'm saying that this shift whereby science and technology become increasingly influential in shaping the conduct of everyday life, you know, has intensified in the second half of the 20th century. As, and as we enter the 21st century, it has become, you know, a very important uh, question. You know, technocracy really is uh, everywhere, East and West, North and South, and of course, technocracy is not everywhere the same. I mean, uh, some frameworks of technocratic governance, for example, are more authoritarian than others. 
And of course, China is an example of an authoritarian uh, framework of technocratic governance. We just have to look at the recent example of, um, you know, pandemic management, you know, COVID-19 uh, pandemic management. I mean, it's clear that, you know, technocracy is everywhere, right? I mean, we, uh, we were confronted with a difficult situation and suddenly we saw the input of scientists and, um, you know, technological developments of the, you know, the, of big pharma having a huge impact on the way that we guide our lives. I mean, we all are, were checking out in our apps and computers and TVs the latest information on the numbers because, of course, this mattered to us and we, um, in the current framework of governance, I mean, of course, science and technology came across as the most important source of information or knowledge to guide um, public policies. Um, but we need to have situated in accounts of the impacts of these forms of technocratic governance in society. Um, of course, that it's great to be able to rely on science and technology to minimize the number of dead, for example, in a pandemic like the one that we are still living today. Um, but the truth is that at the same time, you know, this... Um, various forms of public policies have uh, quite often unforeseen effects uh, in society and unforeseen in the sense that they are not predicted uh, in the way that, you know, by the, by the bureaucrats and the scientists that participated in the process of policy making. So we need to have someone studying, you know, these kinds of effects. You know, it doesn't matter if it's uh, public policies of, um, pandemic uh, containment, or if it's public policies of burst planning, as in the case of my book, or public policies of uh, public hygiene and public sanitation, we need to have someone to actually doing situated accounts, uh, analyses of the effects of these policies on the ground from the perspective of various communities. And I think that anthropology and the, and the social sciences in general have the responsibility and are very well situated to do this kind of job. Um, I mean, not just for the sake of, you know, reclaiming a little bit of, um, you know, power to society, you know, you, you know, bringing society to uh, participate, to be more involved in technocratic governance rather than just be, you know, a passive recipient and quite often a victim of um, frameworks of technocratic governance, but, you know, to give some sort of societal input on, um, on, on technical expertise and, um, and intervention. I think it's, it's a very important, um, it's a very important um, issue. Um, and of course, you know, in the Chinese case, um, you know, it's um, given that the country has undergone monumental transformations over the last uh, four to five decades, uh, you know, quite literally state-led social engineering, um, it's very important to actually have people like anthropologists doing longitudinal studies 
to kind of see, you know, how these policies um, were appropriated by local communities, in this case, rural communities that form a significant part of the country, but also what kinds of unforeseen effects have um, evolved uh, in the process, you know, and, um, you know, what, uh, what can be done as well, as well to, um, to improve uh, this technocratic governance. I mean, this is not really, this part of the improvement is not really my concern, but I, I do think that anybody doing public policy, reading my ethnography, will have a lot of information to digest and um, use um, in efforts to improve and um, improve um, frameworks of governance and bring them closer to, um, to the people they are supposed to be serving, which is ordinary citizens and communities. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, one of, just on, on, this, on this note, this is really something that does come out through each of your chapters. Have you, as you move between these kind of macro, uh, micro paradigms, and through your analysis, you're you're really taking into consideration the technocratic governmentality, whilst at the same time, through um, ethnography, you know, approaching um, these paradigms from a very bottom-up um, stance, which is kind of what what ethnography allows for. Um, I wanted to move to um, to the following chapter: Harmony Cave Families. Um, transition to the 21st century, chapter one. Um, and in this chapter, um, I really enjoyed how you conceptualize the village space um, beyond the territorial definitions of a space, but instead to look at it um, from the translocality of Chinese countryside today. And um, in doing so, you pay attention to the role that telecommunication plays in maintaining the village as a safety net. And I think anybody who's done um, research in any rural context in China would very much um, kind of agree with with what you're writing about. But perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit more about the role that telecommunication played in your field site and more broadly, how is it redefining the notion of the ancestral village in China? Yeah, telecommunication is is part of a series of um, infrastructural changes that have completely changed the framework of mobility and um, I, what I would say, and also, you know, the framework of sociality. Um, I talk about the rise of a translocal mode of sociality uh, in the countryside, which for me is a way of sort of trying to escape old binaries that are still, you know, persisting and affecting the way we talk about the countryside, which prompt us to kind of think about the relationship between the rural and the urban in sort of hydraulic terms, as if, you know, if you, um, if there is migration to rural areas, then we have less people in the countryside, so the countryside is disappearing, uh, kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, cities are growing, the countryside is disappearing. So, you know, because it's sort of the, it's the hydraulic metaphor, right? I kind of, I would, I would like to question this kind of way of framing um, rural-urban uh, relations. In, instead, uh, thinking about this um, 
you know, these relations in terms of, you know, uh, patterns of historical transformation. I mean, you have in different periods of time, you have different ways through which the rural and urban relate to one another. And what the rural and the urban mean in different periods of time is also very, very different. I mean, surely when uh, Feixiao Tong, which I mentioned earlier, was writing about um, when he published his doctoral dissertation in, in the in 1939, um, you know, under the um, uh, supervision of, of, of Malinowski, you know, he was talking about a, country, a, a countryside that surely had a lot of movement going on and was affected by global economy uh, as well. But the people in uh, the villages that, were, that he was talking about were, of course, um, you know, not just attached to territory as in um, a kind of a mindset, um, given that they had a, you know, rural uh, mode of life, um, agricultural mode of life, given that, um, you know, ancestral rituals and so on and so forth quite often had um, agrarian, agrarian, uh, you know, symbols and developed in the context of an agrarian society and so on and so forth. So he could, to a very large extent, talk about this rural China, this traditional China as a nurse-bound China, right? As a China that is um, uh, built around communities that are tied to territories that are lived to, that live to a large extent uh, together that, you know, uh, People encounter one another daily and they are uh, co-residing. They are co-residing in um, the, same, the same location. Um, this um, this, uh, this uh, rural China, I think, is no, longer, um, is no longer there, which does not mean that we don't have a countryside. It just means that we have a different kind of countryside. Um, I mean, to some extent... Uh, attachment to land and territory was kept uh, during the Maoist period in large part because of the implementation of the household registration that has created a, um, you know, uh, two different kinds of populations linked to different kinds of, um, uh, you know, social welfare benefits. So the rural population and the, uh, and the urban population and mobility between, um, between, between these two uh, territorial uh, uh, areas, between these two population zones, was severely restricted. Just as was, just as mobility between cities was severely uh, uh, restricted. So, under Mao, in a way, the uh, the attachment to land and territory that Fei Xiaotong was talking about um, was was to some extent kept. Of, of course, it was transformed. Uh, in the sense that um, state penetration has transformed, state involvement in local community has been intensified and so on. But people were kept to a very large extent uh, living in um, small communities. By the 80s and 90s, as China opened to the world uh, and economic reforms um, completely changed the way um, the economy, uh, you know, economic reforms were accelerated and urbanization beca- became a priority. Um, obviously, um, 
new forms of mobility have emerged that have necessarily changed the way that rural sociality um, operates. It's not to say, I mean, as people started to move to the city, of course, many rural residents were able to um, to be integrated in the city, or in some cases, some rural areas were integrated administratively in uh, in urban areas, and therefore this um, administrative transformation also completely transformed the scope of their uh, of their possibilities. Um, but for many people in the countryside, including the communities that I studied in northern Grandon, um, what really happened was a uh, the beginning of a um, a circular of circular movements whereby households uh, would be moving back and forth between you know the countryside and urban areas um, when I first arrived in the countryside this um, even you know before the age of telecommunication, this was already taking place, uh, but was taking place with a you know in, in the form of you know people were starting to go to the to the city. They were starting to get to get jobs in the city. They would start to do businesses in the city, and so on and so forth. Spending large amounts of time outside the countryside and returning for periods of ritual festivity. Uh, and 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 so on and so forth. Um, as t- the world, you know, new world of telecommunication and um, you know, smartphones, um, the internet uh, was introduced. This allowed to sustain this kind of um, translocal framework of. Um, sociality, sustain in the sense that it allowed people to um, to remain in contact, to create, to recreate the, the illusion of being close um, while being distant, you know, so you could, you could go to the, you could go to the city uh, and spend there much of the year, or you could go to a even to a market town and, uh, you know, reside for much of the outside of the space of the ancestral village, and yet recreate a sense of closeness, not just with the ones that are with your immediate family or with your extended family, right, your patrilineal extended family, but also, um, you know, recreate a sense of closeness with, um, village relatives writ large. I mean, with people from your, from your hamlet or people from the wall of the village in which you're able to participate in exchanges, you know, the, the kinds of regular daily exchanges that I encountered in the 90s, whereby villages would hang out at the village door every night and they would gossip and observe one another you know, and be uh, upset or rejoice at seeing uh, certain neighbors, you know, that kind of intensity uh, is no longer there today. I think we've moved on to a, to a situation whereby the village remains uh, the ancestral space, as I call it in the book, the ancestral land remains a core symbolic uh, item 
um, in the making of collective shared identity. And most villagers uh, have a house in that space, but they are not necessarily residing there for much of the year. I mean, most of the people living there are either um, older residents, um, um, sometimes with children, other times not even with children, because the children now are in boarding schools in the market town for much of the week. So at most they will return to the village in the, uh, in the weekend. Um, but I think that, you know, even though there was a transformation in this, there was a transformation in the way that you're relating to, to village space, the, the, the space itself retains a core, a core, um, um, you know, a core meaning uh, to to villagers, and it's still the site of important symbolic struggles in the context of festivals, in the context of you know wedding banquets, in the context of funerals, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, um, that's that's a very good point, and um, I just wanted to kind of mention. I, I do think this really does radically differ quite a lot across the countryside in China. I mean, I do think Guangdong, especially the kind of coastal areas um, really are quite um, significantly different. I've done research in one kind of Guizhou province landlocked area of China where um, um, a lot of what you're describing, the social dynamics um, was very lively when I did my research, um, you know, just, just three, four years ago. So I think there is quite a remarkable, I mean, there are, there are remarkable radical differences um, just, just nationally. Um, but one, one particular um, element that may be, isn't so radically different is um, the scientific birth planning campaign, which has been initiated um, across the country um, since the early 1980s until more recently has seen big changes in that front. Um, but I really, I really enjoyed your material on this. And especially in chapter two, you delve into themes related to uh, love and marriage and the challenge of scientific birth planning which you write about through um, clashes between local patriarchal daily arrangements and the technocratic values of birth planning policy. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about these influences and what do they tell us about um, what you describe as the frictions between micro and macro level explanations, um, such as state policy and global forces? I mean, of course, China is a, is a massive country. Right, we're talking about a country the size of a continent, and so it's 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 literally impossible to um, to use one case study to kind of exemplify literally what's going on uh, in the wall of the country. However, I do think that the trend towards um, you know the translocal sort of um, uh, the shift toward the translocal mode of sociality that I was talking about, I think it's it's part of a continuum. Uh, it's, it's a change that is part of a continuum that takes many forms in different paces. And I think the same for the birth planning um, policy. You know, one of the things that struck me when I first arrived in Harmony Cave in the late 90s was that, you know, at the time we used the term one-child policy uh, to refer uh, to uh, what I preferred to call the birth planning policy or the birth control policy to follow quite literally the Chinese term uh, for it. 
Um, and, you know, it's just struck me as um, one of those terms that really made no meaning whatsoever in the specific context that I was talking about. Because as far as I could ascertain, you know, in the first few months of fieldwork, you know, there was no such thing as a one-child policy because everybody was having more than one child. You know, everybody was having two, three, sometimes four, five children, six children. Uh, so, you know, I was quite shocked. It was sort of mind-blowing. It was a revelation, sort of one of my first encounters with this idea that uh, you don't have one China, you have multiple Chinas. Uh, and the same thing for policies. You don't have one policy, you have multiple policies. Um, and I think that's that's the kind of a pluralization of um, our understanding of policymaking and its impact on society that I'm trying to achieve uh, with my sort of bottom-up approach to the impact of technocratic forms of governance like burst planning um, on the ground. You know, it's just that you you sort of realize, I mean, that it's not enough just to think about, okay, you look at how the policy was designed in uh, in Beijing. Uh, you know, in this case, the first planning policy, as you know, was designed by, uh, by a, 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 a missile scientist. So, you know, uh, an expert that has really nothing to, uh, to do with the realm of family planning could not be further away it's a wonderful example of technocracy at work uh, right the algorithms of the birth planning policy were designed by a missile scientist and they were implemented on the ground and we, we cannot just assume that those algorithms or those intentions as they were designed initially uh, in the 70s and and eventually promulgated in 79 you know it's that they are just going to be implemented everywhere in the same way and that they are going to take uh, the same form uh, everywhere um, you know it's it's much more it's much more wise I would say um, and and closer to the kind of anthropological uh, sensibility that characterizes the uh, the ethnographic uh, approach to kind of assume that there are going to be variations uh, not just in the framework, but also the way that uh, the way that 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 the communities that are being targeted uh, by policymaking frameworks, they themselves are going to be um, engaging in complex negotiations, you know, between. Um, you know, different members who are going to have different disagreements. They are going to look at the new framework and they are going to have uh, preferences. Some uh, family members will will side with some of the uh, guidelines and the overall direction indicated by the birth planning. Some family members are going to um, are going to um, to be very critical. So I'm interested in these tensions because I believe these tensions are crucial to understand how uh, policymaking variations occur on the ground. It's not enough just to just assume that you have this policy framework from the top coming and very smoothly circulating without any kinds of uh, frictions encountered um, it's much more productive and 
in the, in a way I was being forced to adopt this approach, given that, as I said um, in the beginning, you know, um, I encountered a situation in which not only people were having um, more than one child, but they were having, um, they were giving birth in secret uh, in the late nineties. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the most, uh, uh, the biggest challenges I had initially, in addition to the bureaucratic challenges of negotiation, uh, of negotiating my entry into um, into um, into the the township where I did my fieldwork, uh, from the side of the villagers, one of the biggest challenges I had was that I was being uh, systematically connoted with either uh, I was either a bandit escaping from the from the you know from the uh, from the police uh, hiding in secret right I mean of course I literally arrived from nowhere I'm a foreigner um, so I must be some kind of bandit but w- one other version that was very popular is that of course I was because I spoke Cantonese you know I was kind of uh, uh, some kind of um, underground agent. Uh, working for the Communist Party to kind of assess the way that they were uh, abiding or not uh, the birth planning policy um, instructions. So, of course, there were initially many people were very uh, afraid of uh, talking to me precisely because, you know, they, they were not entirely aware of what was my identity and whether I had connections to um, official uh, official authorities. But the fact that I encountered this environment in which people are sort of, you know, at the, at the moment in which, you know, you're reading the international press, China is implementing a one-child policy and so on, and then what you're doing fieldwork and you're encountering these villages, you know, in which, you know, people are doing, uh, giving birth in secret, they are avoiding hospitals, they are not reporting births quite often, so how do you make sense of this? So um, you do need some kind of bottom-up bottom up approach in which you kind of, um, you know, need to make sense of, okay, there was a set of instructions coming from the top. The set of instructions were very powerful. To some extent, the overall direction of the set of instructions was non-negotiable. Also, because it was sponsored by international neo Malthusian organizations, you know, that were very, very much into promoting um, birth control and population control, the reduction of fertility worldwide as the solution to poverty. So the Chinese state was committed to these international organizations and also had to. Um, was also convinced that the solution to China's to China's uh, poverty problem, you know, necessarily entailed reducing fertility. So this was non-negotiable. But of course, the details of how do you implement this non-negotiable direction uh, are negotiable, and um, and they will take many different forms depending on what kind of environment um, you you are uh, handling um, and. You know, Chinese massive. We're talking about a countryside in which lineage formations are incredibly powerful. By lineage formations, what I'm saying, what I'm talking about, really, is communities that claim to be 
um, you know, that have quite often genealogies, oral or written, in which they state that they claim um, they have a patrilineal ancestor, right? Some uh, 300 years ago, 400 years ago. So we're talking about long, the communities with a long time span, imaginary or historical. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it's just, uh, uh, and this, uh, and this uh, genealogical uh, imagination also has implications in terms of ideas about fertility, um, if you if you are if you are committed to a project of keeping your village alive over the generations, you are also committed to the project of uh, trying to have as many children and especially as many male children as possible, because only children can be uh, can be uh, um, can can inherit uh, not just property but also. Um, uh, you know, family identity, family surname, right? So only they can be incorporated in village patrilines. So obviously, villagers were very motivated culturally um, to to kind of um, to kind of have um, many children. And so, you know, what I was interested is in seeing how this sort of patriarchal family planning preferences you know, with all the kinds of disagreements that you'll find, because obviously, you know, there are differences between men and women, different generations, you know, um, different generations of villagers will also have different preferences depending on the biographical trajectory of villagers. They will be more into having more or less children. Uh, They will be more or, or less into having only male children and so on and so forth. So how these... You know, in this context, how did they negotiate this? Um, you know, the 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 engagement with this new order of birth planning that it's coming from the outside, that is presenting at itself as the new way to be modern, as the new way to be uh, a modern Chinese citizen. You know, as the new way to be civilized. Right. So how do you negotiate? So, you know, much of that chapter really is about, um, you know, what happens when you take these negotiations, this micro level negotiations seriously. And the key part of um, of what policymaking on the ground really is. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. That was really fascinating. Um if we move on to the next chapter, so you've been talking a lot about this bottom-up approach that you take, but you also take, which I think is so fantastic about your work, you really take a woman-centered approach to your work. And it's just remarkable, the stories that you've gathered of, of childbirth at home from the older generation and um, cesarean section operations that, that um, your interlocutors were having around you and these discussions that you're kind of documenting around um, kind of the pain of childbirth and how there's kind of um, tension or different understanding across the generations of how much pain a woman should even take on at childbirth. I think it's just so remarkable that you were able to um, um, kind of, I mean, this is, what, this is just, I guess it, it again draws draws light to um, what com- what anthropology is about. It's, it's really uh, coming, um, you know, getting, getting to that um, eye level, um, getting to that, um, 
the everyday occurrences of the people around us and really listening and paying attention to to their lives. Um, and you really take on this woman-centered approach through this to consider the moral debates, um, as I mentioned, around cesarean rates and the limits of childbirth medicalization in China to describe the technocratic medicalization of childbirth management across the entire country. Um, and you, you frame your discussions around the negotiations across medical professionals, nurses, pregnant women and her family members, whilst at the same time studying these generation, generational differences, or again, it's what you describe as um, to be frictions across the techno-moral understandings of birth. Um, maybe you could tell us a bit uh, about these generational differences and the frictions that you observed so closely in your fieldwork. Sure, sure. I mean, um, childbirth is a wonderful, a wonderful, um, you know, topic to kind of think about generational differences and to think about temporality. I think it's a, a wonderful, a wonderful subject of um, analysis. And I mean, I, one of the one of the issues at stake is that the transformations that have taken place in the way that childbirth management is or normative procedures of childbirth management um, sort of are conceptualized and handled. We're just simply, um, you know, breathtaking. Um, as I was saying earlier, China is a massive country. So we're talking about rural areas and, you know, rural areas for many rural areas in the nineties, the shift to, um, hospitalization and um, medically assisted um, forms of childbirth management was still in the process of sort of taking place. So the majority of women in the late 90s, when I first arrived in Harmony Cave, were giving birth still in um, at home, actually, uh, quite often, as I said earlier, also in, in secret, in secret location, and with the assistance of midwives, that is, uh, local midwives, midwives that were not really uh, professionally trained uh, midwives, nurse midwives, but midwives that had sort of crash courses on, you know, what to do uh, in, um, um, in, in the context of childbirth, learn about basic uh, medical uh, procedures, and that, you know, for the most part, their knowledge was pretty much practical uh, and learned from experience and also from uh, learning from other, from other um, older, older women. So this was the kind of context uh, that I initially encountered. And as I, you know, one of the advantages of the longitudinal approach is that you don't just take one snapshot, one Polaroid of reality you take multiple uh polaroids uh over time and this uh longitudinal dimension allows you to see changes occurring in front of your uh in front of your eyes you know um and one of the things that i sort of witnessed myself was the process through which women started to go more and more uh to the hospital and as they started to go more and more to the hospital to give birth, they started to, the, the rates of cesarean um, started to really, um, 
you know, um, go from to, you know, sort of very high rates. So, you know, from 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 rates below 10 percent, um, you know, from from being a very um, a very sort of rare uh, medical procedure, quite often unavailable because uh, local clinics did not have the necessary um, conditions to perform cesarean surgery. Uh, so from being a very rare medical procedure that could only be performed in county uh, hospitals, the cesarean was kind of routinized. It became a routine medical uh, procedure. And um, I kind of, I was interested in um, looking at this transformation, not from the perspective of, um, you know, hospital management or um, not from the perspective of medical training, but I was interested in doing something that to me seems like should be a priority in social science research. But to be honest, apart from studies in the anthropology and sociology of birth, you know, very few people are actually interested in doing this, which is to study these transformations from the perspective of women themselves. Given that they are the ones that are giving birth, obviously it should matter to us um, you know, what they think about what is happening. How do they um, evaluate this um, uh, transformation uh, from a, a regime of birth in which, um, you know, giving birth at home with midwives is normal to a regime of birth in which giving birth in the hospital is mandatory uh, because that's the overall direction of the birth planning policy. And um, also, uh, you know, quite often you're subject to uh, cesarean uh, procedures. What kind of debates uh were emerging. Of course, I didn't have to really look for these debates. They were just literally happening in front of, of my of my of my of my eyes. And one of the um, advantages here for me in this specific topic, um, which I think would be impossible for me to do in a urban context, is that to talk about childbirth in a sort of rural uh, context is a fairly um, is a fairly normal thing, you know. Childbirth is part of is part of life, um, and as everything that is part of life, there's nothing to be ashamed of talking about uh, childbirth matters. So, you know, I quite often encountered in the context of uh, this, you know, debates, informal conversations after meals and so on with with uh, with groups of women that um, the subject of childbirth would come up. And the moment the subject of childbirth would come up, there were just these tremendous disagreements about, you know, how to make sense of what was going on, and you know, who was, you know, the so-called birth wars, as as we, as many of us refer to that in, um, you know, um, in 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 more urbanized contexts, you know, birth wars in the sense, you know, are you a pro-cesarean person or are you? Um, you know, an anti-cesarean person? Are you a pro-vaginal birth person? Are you anti? And so on and so forth. There were these debates. And inevitably, it struck me that there was this very profound generational dimension in this, uh, in these disagreements and in this conversation. And this generational dimension had to do with two things. I mean, on the one hand, there was the fact that China's pace of social change had been just um, uh, breathtaking, right? So, I mean, in the context in which 
in the course of one generation, you move from giving birth to the hospital to giving birth in to from giving birth at home to giving birth in the hospital with high tech technologies. You know, you you're bound to have uh, conflicts and uh, moral disagreements about how to assess these uh, technical, uh, uh, these social and technical uh, changes. Uh, and there was another reason for the uh, for the for the fact that generation mattered so much when it comes to childbirth, and this has to do with the fact that you know although um, China has been profoundly uh, subject to individualization processes, you know, so individualism has been on the rise, you know, the power of to have a say on one's own line, on one's own life, and craft one's own biography, is by any means uh, is is for sure an increase has been for sure an increasingly dominant uh, theme in uh, Chinese society, as well as studied by uh, anthropologists like Yan Yunshang and so on and so forth. The fact remains that the multi generational family, not just in rural areas, also in urban areas, retains a very strong um, a very important role, and that means that multiple generations quite often are co-residing or at least um, living in you know very close from one another, maintain very close ties. Um, quite often, they share, you know, household division uh, of labor is thought through in generational terms. So the question of generations was also very. Prominent, you know, because you know, on the one there were clashes of generation because of you know social change was drastic and so on and so forth, but on the other hand, there were sort of um, there were sort of uh, um, you know women and uh, and men as well were holding on to this multi generational model of the family. So the question was for me was, you know, how can we uh, if we want to understand birth and if we want to understand what kinds of ideas and, and moral ideas, moral preferences that women have when it comes to childbirth methods, we have to situate uh, these, uh, uh, you know, the development of these ideas in the context of generational conversations that are taking place between you know, women from different generations that have completely different experiences of birth. Uh, and I was interested in, in, you know, in looking at the unfolding of these conversations um, and seeing the situations in which conflicts occurred and situations in which, by contrast, there was a compromise, you know, and, and this compromise is necessary to, uh, to maintain the fiction of the multi-generational family. Uh, in fact, um, I came out of that study thinking that, you know, generational relations should be thought of as key as a key variable of social support when it comes to, um, you know, uh, systems of maternal and healthcare um, in, in infant care management. You know, um, if you want to make a, a good prediction as to whether a woman has or not, or is in a good position to, uh, to, to handle the uncertainties of hospital care, and hospital care comes, of course, with a lot of uncertainties, you know, good, a good variable that can help you um, to a very large extent um, 
you know, make an assessment of the quality of social support is the quality of the generational or the intergenerational relations. Yeah, and, and thank you for that. That was really interesting. And you continue on this this topic of um, multi-generational support in Chapter 4, uh, where you talk about um, this through, through child-rearing practices. Um, I was wondering, you, you use this term technologies of multiple mothering, which I thought was really, really productive in, in this discussion. Perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit about the processes involved and, and what it, what this means, what does technologies of multiple mothering mean through, through your fieldwork? I mean, the term technology, perhaps I should start with the term technology is a, is a, is a short for, I mean, I, 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 I advocate a more humanized uh, conceptualization of technology rather than holding on to the fiction of technology as something that is autonomous from society. I talk about socio-technical systems, right? So it's, really a social technical system of multiple mothering. Um, and this is another wonderful example of um, how intergenerational relations play a crucial role in, uh, or have played, have been playing a crucial role in, um, you know, household divisions of labor uh, in, in the Chinese context. I mean, in fact, not just in the Chinese context, in many other parts uh, of the world as well. Uh, by multiple mothering, I mean the idea that, um, you know, um, child rearing, uh, in, uh, in contrast to the modern, the modern template of parenting and child rearing is based on the fiction of the nuclear family. Um, and this means that, you know, parents, if you want to be a modern parent, so to, so to speak, uh, you, 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 you are expected to be closely involved in uh, in childcare, and this close involvement, you know, is the is at the heart of what anthropologists and sociologists uh, call an ideology of intensive parenting. It's impossible to talk about the world as we know it from the 1980s onwards without talking about intensive parenting. And intensive parenting really is intensive mothering, because of course there is an unequal. Um, you know, uh, inequality of gender here in terms of the expectation of mothers to be involved in the work of uh, caring for uh, caring for children, um, and of course, like so many other things um, in um, in China, public policies um, in um, after the you know open um, and reform uh, period, you know, started to kind of focus on trying to bring to, ch- to China this more scientific, supposedly scientific modern template of parenting and child-rearing. This required, you know, uh, inculcating the values of intensive parenting and intensive mothering, uh, inculcating the values in, um, you know, the average um, Chinese uh, family. This worked, um, um, this was more successfully implemented in urban areas, um, you know, more attuned to, um, um, you know, busy lifestyles with fixed schedules and, um, and so on and so forth, with also intensive regimes of education and, and so on and so forth. But it took, uh, it took a, a much longer uh, time to, uh, to, to enforce 
in um, in rural contexts and in urban contexts was never really uh, fully enforced, given that you know grandparents were also uh, and even to this day remain heavily involved in um, in childcare um, in childcare um, work. But in rural areas, I mean the the saying that it takes a village to take care of a child, you know, uh, was not just a metaphor; it was quite literal because people were hanging out in uh, tightly knit village communities, uh, whereby where villages were where children were allowed to freely roam and uh, navigate in um, the community and its vicinity. Um, free play and, and, and so on and so forth. And the expectation that uh, if the parent is not there and the teacher is not there, then some kind of some relative is going to be around. And, you know, um, and so um, these arrangements of child care, I refer to as technologies of, um, of multiple mothering. Multiple here points to this idea that you're not just stuck in this nuclear family diet. You're not just stuck in this nuclear uh, family um, parenting uh, business. Uh, you're not just stuck in this intensive, in this model of intensive parent, intensive mothering, and so on and so forth, but rather, you know, yes, you still have the gender component. Yes, by and large, childcare is predominantly a uh, realm of um, the female gender, of female expertise. They are the ones coordinating whatever is going on, but they are able to delegate their uh, their functions and their tasks, multiple tasks, to multiple persons, including men as well, if necessary. Um you know, quite often uh, these work of multiple mothering was performed by not just the uh, the younger, um, the mother herself, but also by the uh, the, the the paternal grandmother, uh, the 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 mother-in-law, so to speak. They were at the heart of this uh, socio-technical system of childcare. Uh, provision and they mobilized whoever they they had at their disposal to kind of um, to kind of uh, um, you know take care of the job of um, um, nurturing uh, children. You know what my what Charles Stafford calls the cycle of young. Yeah, the cycle of young. I mean, it's the job of the multiple mother. You know the. Um, so I was interested in seeing what happens to this to these socio-technical systems of multiple mothering as you enter an age in which, you know, one, villagers start to engage in migration to urban areas. They start to be exposed to urban ideals of intensive mothering and intensive parenting as well. They start to be, um, they have to be far away. So how do they, how do they, you know, is this a problem for them? Do they feel... Yeah, and my first finding was that you know obviously for them it was not a big problem to uh, to to engage in migration, given that you know parenting was always a collective affair. You know, also I mean obviously it involved personal challenges and dilemmas and worries and anxieties, 
Um, but, you know, not being around was not the end of the world because, you know, we could rely on uh, other family members, most notably grandparents, to take care of, um, to take care of uh, the children. And plus migration offered the younger, the middle generation, so the parents, the opportunity to renegotiate their position in this, in this uh, socio-technical complex. So rather than just being deferent to the senior generation, they were the ones making money. They were they went to the they went to the city. They were they were the breadwinners. They were now um, you know the ones that were um, making the necessary um, um, economic resources to keep the family alive. So they were able to renegotiate their position uh, their position in. Um, in the larger in the larger um, family, um, it's hard to say what's going to happen in uh, in the future. I mean, for the for the moment, these socio technical systems of multiple mothering certainly still um, um, you know are still are still a very powerful source of um, childcare um, of managing childcare provision. Um, but you know, public policies of um, parenting and also of education have moved more and more in the direction of uh, taking away the role of the educator from from gra- from grandparents. I mean, the state is worried about the influence of grandparents, so they prefer to kind of, you know, create these mega boarding schools, for example, in which you. Um, you keep the children inside these boarding schools away from the influence of, um, you know, so-called backward uh, grandparents that are unable to have a positive influence in creating civilized subject. And instead you place them in, um, in boarding schools under the care of uh, professional educators. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, people like Scott Rosell, for example, have been advocating for a... Um, Implementing, implementing. I think in short words is uh, in in, in a, a, a short way of saying is to they are, he is defending intensive mothering in the countryside. Let's bring back the Chinese women to uh, Chinese rural rural women to the countryside because they are important educators and they are uh, they are a guarantee that left behind children are not going to develop any pathologies and so on and so forth. I'm. I, I'm not sure if that's the solution. I do understand that there's an issue about, you know, um, about the well-being of left being uh, of left behind children, children they are left behind in villages. But I'm not sure that you know going for, um, you know, supporting intensive mothering as the solution, uh, and postponing the professional ambitions of rural women. Um, and the and the achievements that they've that they've done in the last decades in terms of renegotiating their power position in the family that it's the um, that it's the right way that it's the right way to go but it's clearly is part of um, what I have no doubt is that intensive you know the the modern template of intensive mothering is growing in influence and it's bound to it's bound to have a um, an increasing impact on public policy discussions on the future of child rearing in the countryside. 
Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I think that's such a key point you make about um, the renegotiation, re- renegotiating position that women have in, in, in the rural context and in China, in, in present day society. And um, I definitely agree with you with your concern of, of kind of having to, to, to kind of remove that role of them as the breadwinner. That doesn't seem like a solution to larger social problems in, in the country. Um, if we move on to the next chapter, chapter five, um, if I understood correctly, here you move away from uh, the processes of people making, which you've, um, which you've kind of, been, which has been the focus in, in the previous chapters of your book. And then chapter five, you move towards the micro macro mediations um, and the decisions um, of agricultural traditions. And here you partic- particularly look at the topic of human waste management and how um, more advanced technologies are being introduced in your field site. Um, in particular, um, you look at the politics behind flush toilets in rural China, which is such a fascinating and important um, topic for anybody's, anybody living in, in the countryside. Um, could you tell us a bit more about what, what this politics is, the politics behind flush toilets in rural China today? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, w- w- once again, one of the advantages of the longitudinal approach is that you're sort of confronted with transformations and you're able to make observations and interview people on what is going on and try to grasp a sense of uh, their own perspectives, their own moral perspectives on the sort of technical and material transformations that are happening. Um, And of course, one of the, um, you know, one of the biggest transformations when it comes to um, everyday life um, more than people making, I mean, everyday life, the conduct of everyday life is the kind of transformation in, um, um, in housing and in the way that um, personal hygiene and methods of public sanitation are, uh, are handled uh, in, the, in the village. And of course, as an anthropologist, rather than uh, starting with the assumption that uh, whatever does not fit the modern template of the flush toilet, which is the one that we're used to, right? We're used, we are all used to um, having a flush toilet in one's home, and uh, whenever um, you know, sort of, um, um, one needs to um, uh, to resort to um, um, to handle personal hygiene mat- matters, we go to the um, to the to our toilet and we press the button and we flush it away and it becomes someone else's uh, problem. That's what we do. I mean, it's so it's so uh, uh, deeply ingrained in our uh, existence that it has become largely invisible. We don't notice it um, anymore. And it happened to me that when I uh, one of the advantages of doing fieldwork in contexts that are completely out of the box, so to speak, is that sometimes you're confronted with ways of doing things that are um, that you know maybe you haven't quite um, uh, imagined before that it was possible, and different ways of conceiving uh, what counts as the uh, right way to handle personal hygiene and um, public sanitation. It happened to me in the court in the course of fieldwork, that when I um, arrived in um, in Harmony Cave, um, most villages still did not have uh, flush toilets. And um, instead, 
most people were doing their business, um, you know, either in public latrines or in um, or in the fields, um, and sometimes also using uh, personal personal um, items uh, to contain their um, their um, their pee, like 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 buckets. And so I was kind of struck. Um, by confrontation with this system, because in large part because I couldn't quite, um, I couldn't quite, um, you know, initially I naively assumed that this was just a um, a coarse, um, unsophisticated uh, system of uh, waste management, uh, and um, it took me quite some time to kind of figure out that this was deeply um, connected to a way of conceiving community whereby community and the surrounding environment uh, were um, part of one holistic uh, whole in the sense that, you know, um, you were going to, you were doing your um, pee and poo in public latrines for the purpose of accumulating uh, those uh, valuable uh, materials uh, and sources of nutrients to kind of return them to the fields. So basically you were growing the plants that you eat, you were growing the animals that you eat as well um, with the same with the same kind of uh, um, with, the, with the waste that you produce once you eat those things, right? So, so there's some kind of cycle. Uh, there's some kind of uh, there's a cycle of nutrients uh, that is um, that to me was very inspiring, especially in times of um, climate change and increasing talk of environmental uh, degradation. You know, it seemed to me that um, um, uh, you know I was kind of um, uh, I was encountering a world, um, you know, before what Karl Marx calls the metabolic rift, whereby you know, there is a uh, there is a rupture of the connection between community and land, community and natural environment. Uh, it, they become divorced. And the technology that enforced this metabolic rift is called the flush toilet, right? And, 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 and I had to kind of, uh, so I had to kind of make sense of, how do how do village communities come to endorse this new model of personal hygiene and public sanitation? What were the forces of material civilization, to use a term that was um, you know that was also used by uh, by the Communist Party, pushing sort of uh, in that direction? And what kind of you know how 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 does the system of values embodied by the flush toilet system? How does it contrast with the system of values of the of the premi- of the previous system, the one that was based on the assumption of a recycling of um, you know human human manure, whereby you know your waste was not considered wasteful, right? It was considered a value. Uh, and in, and that value was not necessarily also had an economic value, but above all, it was a value in itself. It was something that you had to do because it was the right thing to do to return 
um, nutrients um, to the land. And you would be reproached. I remember being reproached by villagers in the late 90s uh, whenever I, for example, you know, um, uh, did something like uh, use the bucket. No, uh, instead of using a bucket at home, I would go outside the village and pee outside the village to, um, you know, it was like a waste of resources. You know, I, I, I was supposed to be accumulating this, um, this uh, um, sort of, uh, I was supposed to be accumulating this um, nutrient, this valuable nutrients, this valuable um, um, materials that, you know, had a um, clear-cut function that were supposed to be, um, you know, returned to the land. And, um, you know, I was supposed to accumulate it either in buckets or else in public latrines that, you know, to be honest, they should be more conceptualized, some kind of banks. They were like banks in a human economy, an economy in which... uh, you know, community and environment are part of the same kind of um, holistic uh, formation. Um, the flush toilet um, was um, controversial when it first arrived. Um, it had to be supported. It had to be sponsored. It had to be campaigned by its defenders. And, of course, the defenders of the flush toilet were the ones that first moved to the city as migrants and encountered those flush toilets for the first time. Uh, And while not being obviously convinced of their uh, utility and superiority, they were obviously convinced by the fact that it was the new model that was being adopted by uh, by the government, by the country as a whole, and by by urban areas. So it had to be the best one. And that was the model that was tentatively brought uh, to the countryside. In the book, I describe uh, tours. I remember participating in tours uh, that were organized by um, uh, villagers who had, you know, uh, constructed a new house with a flush toilet, and they would organize tours to show their uh, sophisticated, you know, these new spaces where you're supposed to uh, to do your business and uh, where you're supposed to do your business in privacy and so on and so forth. And, and, uh, and obviously participating in these tours and so on opened my imagination to uh, talking about the negotiations that were taking place in the village uh, to kind of um, as this new normative procedure of how to handle personal hygiene and how to handle uh, public sanitation um, was being um, was becoming more and more dominant. I also do draw attention to the kinds of unforeseen effects, many of them environmental, the environmental problems that were created by the transition to a um, to a flush toilet system of waste of, of human waste management, um, but. Um, yeah, so it's a fascinating topic. Yeah, I think it should be the subject yeah. of a whole book, I think. <laughs> I totally yeah. agree. I mean, I think it's just so interesting. 
so interesting to hear you talk about these kind of contrasts and values and, and what becomes normalized in actually relatively short um, period of time. Um, you know, how, how a person's understanding of, of what they're doing with their waste, um, with their bodily hygiene can, can really change, can really transform quite radically. And of course, in the context of China, which you write about in your work, this is a very politicized um, campaign, right? So in this chapter, as you, as you just mentioned, you're writing about um, these, this kind of flush toilet initiative through the new socialist material civilization. In the next chapter, um, you look beyond um, this idea of socialist material civilization to instead look at socialist spiritual civilization. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about this. Um, I really enjoyed how you write about um, you write about the often neglected role of techno science in the making of contemporary projects of moral transformation and ethical imagination, and you consider these debates through the role of popular religion. Um, so what is it about this? Um, what is it about popular religion and, and this kind of new socialist spiritual civilization campaign? What does it tell us about um, how macro level politics is being practiced in present day China? Yeah, popular religion is a key part of uh, social life in much of the countryside in China. It will take different forms in different parts of uh, China in this um in this part of China, you know, sort of not just uh, ancestral rituals and lineage rituals, but also rituals around uh, deity temples are very, very important. And, um, you know, they are sites for the reproduction of sort of collective, uh, collective um, uh, forms of identity and, and, and so on and so forth. So I was interested in this chapter of, you know, uh, pursuing this um focus on socio-technical systems to think about, to, to look at um, popular religion as a socio-technical system of ethical imagination. I mean, ethical imagination in the sense that, I mean, of course, popular religion is a key source of ethical values and uh, notions of the good life and um, normative values of what should and should not be done uh, you know, it's been religion writ large in general it tends to be a uh, an important an important site for ethical uh, reflection and ethical uh, imagination. Um, but of course, in a context like uh, like China, where you have a state, um, you know, uh, with a um, a strong, a strong um, uh, resistance or a strong suspicion of everything that has to do with um, religion, be it organized religion, be it popular uh, religion. I was interested in 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 in, in looking at this uh, fascinating, fascinating paradox of you know on the one hand you visit the countryside you hang out in the countryside and what you see is this uh incredible um you know uh, effervescence social effervescence to use Durkheim's term of you know big festivals you know the big collective events are popular religion events there's no doubt about it i mean if you want to talk about technologies or ethical imagination in the countryside it's impossible to talk about you know technologies of ethical imagination without talking about popular religion, 
But at the same time, you know, I was interested in drawing a parallel between, um, you know, the uh, role of popular religion as a source of uh, ethical values and so on and so forth uh, with uh, the role of the states and the Communist Party in particular as a source of ethical uh, values, you know. So just as um, the Chinese Communist Party has been very much involved in pushing for a new model of material civilization, socialist material civilization, so the Chinese state has been um, committed to implementing a, a new model of um, you know, socialist, um, spiritual, uh, spiritual civilization, and you know, to make sense, I mean, different, uh, different uh, periods of time, different leaderships of the party has led to different ways of conceptualizing this socialist, spiritual uh, civilization. But of course, a key concern of this uh, socialist, spiritual uh, civilization campaigns. Uh, is not just about you know what it means to be a good person, uh, what is the good life, but also what it means to be a good socialist and what it means to be a good patriot. And in order to do that, of course, the the state itself has to develop technologies of ethical imagination to disseminate uh, their ideas. You know that's a key part of you know how the state maintains its legitimate le- legitimacy. Um, you know, I was I was reading. Re- I mean, it's been the case. Uh, it's not you. I mean, it's been the case uh, um, for for quite some time. And um, obviously, evolving technologies of communication have allowed for different ways of um, of um, communicating with the public and spreading uh, propaganda. I was reading recently uh, Ai Weiwei's um, autobiography, 1,000 Years of Joys and Sorrows, and, you know, has this moving uh, description of, you know, his time in uh, Xinjiang with his father in exile. And, um, and he um, describes movingly, it's quite moving actually, um, these moments in which, you know, every day, or rather every night, the collective in which they were working this was a forced exile, of course, because he had been denounced as a as a as a counter revolutionary, and um, he was. He recalls every night they would sort of hang out and they would be waiting. You know, they would have meetings in the collect. They would be waiting for, um, you know, Beijing a phone call from Beijing. There were there were landline phones, so there was a phone call from Beijing in which they would say the latest words from Chairman Mao. Right then, of course, they would religiously write down the words from Chairman Mao, and obviously they would have, uh, after the phone call, a religious discussion about you know the words of uh, Chairman Mao, and of course, um, Ai Weiwei and his father would be invited to leave because they were polluted beings. They would not, they would not be allowed to be. Um, to, to contact so directly the, the pure words of Chairman Mao. And I'm telling you this story because this is a technology of ethical imagination. You know, it's a way that the state has, in the Maoist period, it's a way that the state has of, you know, 
disseminating ideas about what should and should not be done, what counts as the good life, what are the values that matter, and what it is to be a good socialist, and so on and so forth. Um, in post-Mao period, in the post-Mao period, the state has resorted to the same kinds of technologies, or, or, or rather to, to new technologies of ethical imagination, new ways of disseminating uh, propaganda, new ways of disseminating ethical uh, frameworks um, about um, the good life and and you know what it about being a good socialist and so on and so forth. So I was interested in the contrast between these new technologies of ethical uh, imagination, concepts like core socialist values of um, of um, you know of, of Xi Jinping and so on, and the kinds of values that are promoted in. Uh, in the countryside. And I made the case that, you know, by and large, popular religion remains the moral compass of, um, of the countryside and the sign of the gap between uh, the countryside and a sort of more urban-dominated kind of national, uh, national environment. Having said that, of course, that Xi Jinping is aware of this. And, you know, no doubt that's why also that is moving more and more towards a direction in which uh, the state itself becomes the, uh, the guardian of all these deity, festi- deity temple festivals and so on and so forth. It integrates the party in these popular religion festivities. And by integrating the party in this popular religion festivities, it's a way of trying to kind of remind people that ultimately... This is all taking place under the ethical umbrella of um, socialist spiritual civilization. Um, I'm not sure if this answers your question. <laughs> Absolutely, and um, I think that's a really nice, uh, nice, nice um, kind of theme to end on because you know a lot of the conversations have been about transition, but I feel like. Um, in talking about the technologies of ethical imagination, you're also talking a lot about continuity. Um, so I find that's, I mean, this is something I guess anybody who's doing research anywhere, but in particular in the context of China, something that we always kind of come across, the, both the transitions and the continuities. Um, thank you so much for this. It's been such a fascinating conversation. And it's been just so eye-opening to hear more about the, the content of your book. I recommend everyone listening to this podcast, of course, get a copy of the book, um, China Village Life Today, Building Families in an Age of Transition, um, or get a, get your library to get a copy. Um, but before we close the show, um, before we close this episode, I wanted to ask you about your current projects. What have you been doing since China Village Life Today has been published? Uh, I think, I mean, now I'm sort of wrapping up a project on the medicalization of of birth. I'm trying to kind of, uh, you know, I'm trying to make sense of the cesarean surge. I think we talked about uh, earlier on in this podcast in um, the cesarean surge in China on a national scale. So rather than just focusing on what happened in um, in world context, I'm trying to kind of see what were the the um, the political what is the political economy uh, behind this um, socio-technical transformation? I mean, of course, that by and large the cesarean search, I mean part of the cesarean search can be attributed to 
changes in attitudes and increasing demand for elective cesarean surgery from women and so on and so forth. But I think this is a very, a very simplistic reading of what is um, going on. I think we also need to bring in political economy to help explain the cultural transformations as well as the material uh, factors that are, um, you know, leaving the negotiations that take place between doctors on the one hand, women and their families on the other hand, um, to kind of, um, you know, to converge in a certain direction whereby more and more cesareans are being performed. I mean, we're talking about rates of cesarean, um, despite governmental efforts to reduce uh, cesarean rates, um, they still remain well above the 30%. So uh, we do need to bring in a political economy perspective to kind of think about this, um, these shifts. Um, and I'm also developing some new uh, citizen science projects, but it's still very embryonary, so maybe it's better for me to leave it for a future discussion with you. <laughs> But the, the your your current cesarean project, the the, the one of cesarean um, surgery is a really fascinating topic. And that when I was reading it, reading about how you how you write how you wrote about it, how you documented it, the discussions that arose through your research in the village, I, it was just so fascinating. Um, and then you, you you already in the book you do open it open it up to kind of the, the technocratic medicalization of this in a broader national and even global. Um, scale. So I, I and imagine all the listeners of this show really look forward to hearing more about um, how how you write about this and how you continue to analyze it in your in your next project. But for now, I wanted to thank you for putting time aside and joining us to talk about um, your work today. Thank you so much, Gonzalo Santos. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Suvi. The pleasure was all mine. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning into New Books and Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone.